Matthias Desmet is a professor of psychology at Ghent University. He also has his master's degree in statistics. And he has an interesting and important and powerful take on what's going on in the world right now. And no matter what your beliefs are, I think it's very important to understand the psychological processes that may be affecting a lot of the decisions and emotions we're experiencing as a society right now. But first up, a word from our sponsors. And first up, I get to talk about a company that I'm a part owner of, that I'm extraordinarily passionate about. The company is called Worldview. And what Worldview is doing is offering people an opportunity to have a different perspective of our planet. They've developed a technology where they're bringing helium balloons and these luxury capsules attached to these helium balloons up to the stratosphere. Now, the stratosphere isn't quite weightless outer space, but it's at a height that you're able to see the curvature of the Earth against the backdrop of space and the stars and gaze down and see a world without borders, see a world without division. And this is the type of world, the more beautiful world we're trying to create. And I really believe that people who are able to have this experience where you're in this capsule with seven other people, a pilot, a co-pilot, you're able to spend the time gazing down at the earth, looking up at the stars, to really give ourselves perspective of what we're fighting for. We're fighting for our home, for our place in this brilliant blue gem called Earth. And we're going to get to see it from a different perspective. Not only the people who are in the capsules, but the people who are taking pictures and videos. And actually, you're going to be able to live stream from the capsules themselves. So the content is going to spread around. And that perspective is going to ripple out from the people able to have this unbelievable experience. There's been over 100 test flights already done. It's absolutely safe, multiply redundant. If you're interested in learning about more of it, check out my podcast with Alan Stern, who's the chief exploration officer for Worldview. I'm going to go up there. I'm probably going to podcast up there. It's going to be incredible to have this experience, and I feel really fortunate to be involved with something that's able to shift perspective in a really important way. And also, you know, sorry about it, Flat Earthers. It's going to be really tough to kind of keep that up when you're up in the stratosphere and everybody's live streaming the curvature of the earth against the blackness of space. But it's all good. We love you too. This is an amazing, amazing project. So I encourage you guys to check it out. Go to thewholeworldview.com. If you're interested and you have the resources, you can put down a deposit to get your seat. So once again, Check it out. Go to thewholeworldview.com. And lastly, we have Onnit. Now, I have all of the Onnit supplements in the world and even some other supplements. My supplement cabinet is stocked. And oftentimes, I'll still pick and choose which pills I want. But recently, I've been really busy doing a lot of podcasts, doing a lot of writing, doing a lot of things. So I've just switched entirely to the Total Human Packs. Because what the Total Human Packs are is that is a one-stop day pack and night pack that has all the goodies that you need in it, and you don't even have to think about it. So I just wake up in the morning, still a little groggy, I have a little bit of sea salt in my water, and I rip open the day pack, done. And at night, when it's time to go to bed, rip open the night pack, swallow it down, done. It's so easy to do, and I feel so good. 
And honestly, when I was doing my own thing, sometimes just out of sheer convenience, I wouldn't take any supplements and then I wouldn't be as optimized as I am right now just taking the total human because the total human is designed to have absolutely everything that anyone needs. And if you're listening to this ad close to the release date, there is no better time to try Total Human because there's a free trial available. You're going to get seven days of Total Human. Get used to it. Try it out. See if you like it. No risk. Super convenient. And see if this is just going to become part of your lifestyle. And if you're listening to this a few months after and the trial isn't going on, just check it out. Go to onit.com slash Aubrey. You get 10% off all the time on everything sometimes there's a free trial otherwise you just lock in the discount so go to onit.com slash aubrey and now an uninterrupted podcast with matthias desmond matthias thanks for coming on the show welcome so i'd love to start with uh, a little explanation of your background and where you're coming from and where you've gotten um your education and and uh and some of your credentials uh, to talk about what we're about to talk about. Oh, that's great. Yes. So I, I, I actually, I, I am a professor in clinical psychology and I lecture at, at Ghent University in Belgium. Um, and I'm also, I have a double degree, actually. I'm, 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 I have a degree in, in, in psychology, but also I also have a master, got a master in statistics. So meaning that uh, I, I could take two different angles or two perspectives on this crisis actually yeah and that's kind of where that's kind of where things started for you because with your background in statistics you started noticing that there was models that were being projected out into the world and then the models were not making sense uh pretty quickly so tell us how that got into you know your mind as far as taking a look at things and thinking hmm, something's not quite right here Yes. So, in, indeed, in, in the beginning of the crisis, so around uh, the end of February 2020, I, uh, I, I, for in, uh, first, I, I, I took the perspective of a statistician. Indeed, I started to 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 study some numbers and some figures and some um, the mortality rates, the infection fatality rate, the case fatality rate, stuff like that. And uh, I, I immediately got the impression that uh, that, that most statistical uh, uh, models uh, overestimated uh, the dangerousness of the of the virus. Uh, and um, uh, by the end of 2020, in my opinion, uh, by the end of May 2020, uh, this was proven beyond doubt. I think because. The models that were used uh, or on which the the corona measures were based worldwide uh, uh, predicted, so those were the models of of Imperial Imperial College in in London. Uh, These models predicted that in a country such as Sweden, uh, about uh, 80,000 people would die by the end of May 2020 if the country did not go into lockdown. And uh, the country did not go into lockdown, and only six thousand people died, um, and which means about yeah, thirteen times less uh, uh, than was pre- predicted. So the, the the predictions of Imperial College were were completely off, actually. Um, and um, the, the strangest thing was for me that uh, at that moment, uh, like the 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 the, the Corona measures uh, or or the or the the, the people in charge always claimed that that they relied on mathematical modeling and on science actually but 
when it was proven beyond doubt that uh, the initial models uh, were completely wrong, the measures continued, the corona measures continued as if nothing was wrong, as if as if, as if the models were right. So that was a, like for me, that was a, a strong sign that. Uh, uh, there were things going on at a psychological level that were really powerful. Be besides other things, of course, like something mm -hmm. that all that also struck me in the beginning of the crisis was that um, political leaders never seem to have taken into account uh, the collateral damage caused by the measures. And so, like in my opinion, if you uh, take measures against the virus, the first thing that you would consider is uh, whether the, the measures you take, for instance, the lockdowns, uh, will not claim more uh, uh, victims uh, than the virus could claim. And that was exactly, so like in the beginning of the crisis, um, uh, institutions such as the United Nations uh, warned us immediately uh, that uh, uh, there could be uh, uh, more people dying from hunger, from starvation in developing countries than there could possibly die from the virus if no measures were taken at all. So it showed us immediately that actually the remedy could be far worse uh, uh, than the disease in this case. And also that in one way or another, uh, nobody seemed really able uh, to take into account both uh, the, um, uh, the, 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 the victims that could be claimed by the virus on the one hand and the collateral damage caused by the, by the corona measures. At never during this crisis, we saw one mathematical model that calculated both the number of victims that could die from the virus and the collateral damage of the measures. Never. Huh? This never happened. And that's, and that's just, it's, it's such a basic thing that you would do. You know, if, you, if you're acting in good faith and you want to do the best thing for the world, the best thing for the country, you look at all different options and you assess risk and reward for all different options and you make a logical decision. You know, I mean, it's of just... Course. It's just the, the most obvious thing to do. This is not like, wow, what an amazing idea, Matthias. No. How did you come up with that? That's incredible. It's, it's obvious that you It's the most that. basic consideration someone can do in this situation, yes, and it never happened. So it's, it, in one way or another, it showed how that the attention of, of, of the entire world was so narrow, that it was so focused so much on, on one risk or one danger, the, 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 the coronavirus itself, uh, that to me it seemed as if uh, 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 I should from from then on, from the end of two, of May two thousand from the end of May uh, two thousand and twenty, I really switched perspectives. I really had a feeling that uh, uh, I should try to understand what was happening at the psychological level. What made mm -hmm. that the attention of people was so narrowly focused on uh, the the on the uh, uh, on the on the coronavirus. Uh, this was something that this was something that was very difficult for me and um you know this is a very complex situation and it's hard to know what exactly the right thing to do is but the fact that people weren't considering all of these other tangential and secondary effects of all of the measures being taken and not only that but the opportunity cost of the money that was being spent to support the lockdowns and the closing of businesses i mean the us alone has produced trillions of dollars of excess no. capital and if you look at statistics of estimates from, you know, different 
worldwide organizations, okay, what would it cost to create sustainable food supplies for the entire world yeah. and world hunger? It's like 300 billion or somewhere around mm-hmm. there. What would it cost to get clean sanitary water for mm-hmm. everybody who's dying of parasites with the bloated belly? Okay, that's maybe 150 billion. All right, mm-hmm. maybe it's double that. Doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. It's less mm-hmm. than one stimulus check. And all of a sudden yes, we ended course. world hunger. We ended, you know, we provided clean water for the world. And then mm-hmm. we can start looking at other things. Okay, let's improve education. Let's improve all of these other qualities that ultimately downstream lead to the degradation of society, poor education, poor support, poor nutrition, you know, lack of lack of support for families and domestic abuse and, and all of these centers. There's so much that could have been done with the money. Mm-hmm. So there's like not only the direct cost, which is the suicidality that goes from lack of meaning and lack of purpose from people taking their jobs and and the increase in alcohol sales, which are through the roof, and increase in domestic violence, and all of these other different things, and the people who are being starved. But then there's opportunity cost, and that wasn't in a model either. Mm. So like no, no one was deciding like, okay, maybe this is the right thing, and I'm and I'm still open to that. I'm still open to that. But you have to show me. You have to show me that that this is the right thing compared to all of the other things that we could do. I mean, mm. I was the CEO of a of a big company. It's it's ba- it's basic. You know, like mm-hmm. here, here we got this. We got this opportunity. It's going to cost this. This is where yeah. it's going to go. You just figure it all out. Of course, and you make the best choice, and maybe you're wrong, but at least you've considered it. Mm-hmm. Of course, yes, and that that was what 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 didn't happen, and what what was 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 really striking. Um, uh, and and then, and then, like you know, I started to to really think about uh, what what psychological dynamic or processes could be responsible for 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 this lack of uh, openness of mind in a situation and it took me several months actually it took me until august 2020 to really in my opinion hit the nail <laughs> and then to and to 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 suddenly see that uh, what we were dealing with was a large-scale phenomenon of mass formation, of what is called mass formation. And uh, looking backward, it, 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 it seems really surprising to me that it took me so long because I had been lecturing uh, uh, for three or four years uh, about this psychological process, which, which showed actually that also I, as a psychologist, was very much uh, 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 under the spell of, 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 of this process, or at least that, that also for me, it was it was really difficult uh, to see what was going on, and I believe that's the same for my co- for my uh, for my colleagues uh, in psychology. Most of them uh, 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 are really not aware of, of 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 what is going on at this moment. I mean, ninety nine percent. Yeah. So this for, I want to really get into this um, into mass formation and understand it. Is it? Is it possible that just like you, you know, first of all, I want to I want to make it so that it doesn't seem like we're saying this is some conspiracy and, and it has to be that. It seems like it's possible that even the politicians themselves, even the policymakers themselves, everybody was falling victim to this kind of mass psychosis yeah, that yeah, was happening true. in mass formation. You know, this was just a psychological process that was universal that doesn't necessitate and doesn't necessitate some evil intent or some you know powerful cabal that's trying to do no. something to harm people it's just a psychological process that's of course difficult to difficult to resist unless you become aware of it uh, yes, yes it's a psychological process that is for 95 percent uh an, un- an unconscious process both at the level of the masses and at the level of the leaders of the masses so that, that that's one uh, uh very important thing that 
the leaders of the masses usually uh, are also grasped in the process of mass formation. But maybe we should go into detail a little bit and tell how it emerges in a society, the process of Absolutely. mass formation. Absolutely. Is, is that okay? Please. So like, like mass formation is a specific kind of group formation and it, 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 it emerges or, uh, in a society when uh, very specific conditions are met. Uh, 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 and, and the most central of these conditions, the most important of these conditions is that there should be a lot of people who experience a lack of social bond, a lot of people who, who feel socially isolated. And then the second condition immediately well, let me stop. let me stop you there because I have some yes. statistics. So lack of social bond. We're talking about ripe conditions for this psychological phenomenon called mass formation, which is a kind of group hypnosis. Yes. So number one, lack of social bond. This is a, this is a condition that's important. Here's some statistics. Um, According to the National Survey from published in the American Sociological Review, 25% of people reported that they didn't have a single close friend. Not one, right? No. That's, a, that's, that's a crazy thing. 21 out of four people no. didn't have a single close friend. And then the 75 million adults aged 18 to 27, comprising the millennials and Generation Z, were lonelier than any other U.S. demographic. Which is wild to think. We think of like older, older generations being lonely, but it was actually the younger generations reporting even more loneliness. Some psychologists say it's a social media paradox. People are interacting mm -hmm. online with their avatars, which isn't their true self. So they're not creating mm -hmm. the intimacy of vulnerability that comes from shared experience. So as far as condition number one for mass formation, it's inarguable that we are suffering a crisis of lack of community and lack of social yes, we do, we do, yes, yes. And from from the from this first condition follows the second one, which means that a lot of people experience life as meaningless or senseless. And um, uh, for instance, think about uh, the phenomenon of the bullshit jobs. I don't know if you're familiar with this mm -hmm. phenomenon. Uh, uh, Professor Graeber in the, in in in, uh, in Great Britain wrote a book about it, with a bit of, which was titled "Bullshit Jobs." And he describes how research shows that uh, when you ask people whether whether they think their job is meaningful, 50% of the people answers not at all. 50% feels uh, that their job is not meaningful at all, that it doesn't mean anything to anyone. So it's, it's, it's also a very nice example, I think, of it's how a much very strong condition. I also have another. I have another study. Um, that I was able to, to find. It's a Gallup poll from 2012, polled people in 142 countries. 63% of respondents admitted to being so disengaged at work that they were sleepwalking through their workday, putting time but not passion into their work. 63% of people, right? Yeah. So, okay, condition number two. Condition yes. number two, we've, we've established that there's a lack of social bond, there's a lack of meaning and purpose in what people Absolutely. are doing. Yeah. And the third condition follows actually from the from the first two conditions. And me and the third condition is that there in order for mass formation to emerge, there should be a lot of what psychologists call free floating anxiety and free floating psychological discontent. Meaning that uh, you know, if you're anxious of a lion, you know what you're anxious for. So the, 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 the anxiety is connected to the mental representation or the mental image of a lion. But if people feel socially isolated and if they feel that their life has no meaning, then they are confronted with 
a kind of anxiety that is free-floating. That means that it is not connected to, to a mental representation and with a lot of psychological discontent that is not connected with a mental representation. And also at that, at that level, we see uh, very striking things, namely that, for instance, in, in a country such as Belgium, um, uh, each year, 300 million doses of antidepressants are used in a population of about 11 million. And then we are talking only about antidepressants. There are also antipsychotics and sleeping pills and all anti-anxiety medications. Yeah. 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 So, and then uh, the fourth condition is uh, that there should be and a let lot me of... Just give, let me just give one more study. So the World Health Organization says that one in five people are actually... Uh, actually have anxiety disorders so they actually not only have anxiety but they qualify as having anxiety disorders yeah. which is over 300 million people and that's something that's you know in the in the manual like an anxiety just not just like a little bit of anxiety oh, no, no, which no, a no. lot of us it have is. like one in five people have anxiety disorders so this free-floating anxiety is also incredibly pervasive well yes of course it is yes yes um uh yes and then and then the, the the fourth condition is that there should be a lot of free floating frustration and aggression meaning like people should feel and that actually follows from from the other conditions as well so the people should feel frustrated and feeling aggressive uh, uh without also really knowing uh, uh, what the cause of their frustration and aggression is. Uh, so, the, 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 and then if, if these four conditions uh, are fulfilled uh, in, in, in society, then uh, uh, the population is in a, in a mental state uh, in which something very specific can happen, can happen. Meaning that if under these conditions a narrative, a story is distributed, through the mass media, indicating an object of anxiety, and at the same time, providing a strategy to deal with this object of anxiety, then the following happens, or might happen. All the free-floating anxiety, free-floating anxiety, which is extremely painful because it, it always threatens to turn into panic. So all this free-floating anxiety is attached to, connected to the object of anxiety, indicated in the narrative and there is a huge willingness to participate in the strategy to deal with this object of anxiety because in this way people feel that they can control their anxiety and their psychological discontent better so all this anxiety connects to this object of anxiety and there is a huge willingness to participate in the strategy and that leads up to something very specific, people suddenly feel connected again in a heroic struggle with the object of anxiety. So a new kind of solidarity, a new kind of social bond, and a new kind of meaning-making, sense-making emerges in society. And that's the reason why people follow the narrative, why people buy into the narrative, and why they are willing to participate in the strategy, even if it is utterly absurd. Because the reason why they follow it has nothing to do with the fact that it is correct or accurate or, or, or scientific, not at all. The reason why they buy into the narrative is because it leads to this new social bond, this new solidarity. People are social beings and 
being socially isolated is really painful. And through the process of mass formation, they switch from the very negative state of social isolation isolation to the opposite state of maximal connectedness, of the maximal connectedness that exists in a crowd or a mass. And that in itself leads up to a kind of mental intoxication, which is the real reason why people stick to the narrative, why why people are willing to go along with the narrative, even as we said, if it is utterly wrong and even more important, even if if they lose everything that is important to them personally, because it's mass formation is a kind of hypnosis. And just like in hypnosis, the attention is focused on this very small part of reality that is indicated by the story. And just like in hypnosis, people are not aware of everything that happens mentally outside of this small focus of attention. That's very something very striking. Like in hypnosis, what you see is that a simple hypnotic procedure is sufficient uh, to focus the attention of someone so much on one aspect of reality that he will that the person will never feel that someone cuts into his flesh. It's a procedure that is used in some hospitals when someone is allergic to a, to a chemical anesthesia. Sometimes a simple hypnotic procedure is used which focuses the attention on, 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 on a positive thing and then the surgeon can cut straight through the, breast, through the breastbone. The patient will not feel it. So that's, that's exactly what happens in mass formation. The attention is focused on the, on the, on the virus, for instance, in this, in this case. And then uh, people are not aware that they lose uh, every, their psychological health or their physical health or that they lose their, their, their wealth, uh, uh, the, 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 their, their material their well-being. And so on. Um, uh, uh, that's that's one of the most problematic aspects of uh, of the phenomenon of mass formation. And it can be it can be productive, right? Like the, the human beings don't develop things that are entirely unproductive. Those things typically get weeded out. So you take a look at like Sebastian Junger's work in, in his book Tribe, and he talks about how in interviewing and surveying the people who survived the Blitzkrieg in London where bombs were falling from Nazi bombs were falling and the air raid sirens were going off. They report that that was the happiest time of their life. They were happiest when the bombs were falling. Can you imagine the atrocity of bombs falling people, people dying, exploding things happening, Mm -hmm. but they felt such a deep social bond and all Uh, of of their focus of attention was on the Nazis, on the bombs. It brought everybody together. No one was lonely. Actually the mental hospitals, they all emptied out to a certain mm-hmm. degree, like everybody was like, oh, I, we have a deep meaning, we have a clear purpose, we're all in this together, and they felt better than they ever have. So, And it allowed them to make it through a very challenging situation. So in a situation like that, it's a very healthy process that can happen. Yes, yes. it is. Uh, uh, for the same reason, people do not, uh, people do not commit suicide uh, under 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 very severe conditions, for instance, in the concentration camps and the gulag, people did not commit suicide, and it was because there was a clear external danger they were focused on, and which made their psychological system very coherent, very coherently focused on one point. Usually, people commit suicide because they feel internally divided, because they feel uh, they they lack unity, they lack coherence, and when there is a strong external danger. Um, uh, people usually uh, uh, will feel very coherent, and 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 they will they will, for instance, uh, not commit suicide. That's something very striking. And the example mm-hmm. you give is actually a wonderful example indeed of people who 
uh, or under attack and who, who feel that they, they experience the, the happiest time, times of, uh, of their lives. So I've never heard that example, but it's, it's, it's a wonderful example. Yes. Yeah, Sebastian Junger's book Tribe yeah. is, is phenomenal. I recommend it. Uh, there's very toxic examples of that as well. So you take a look at the witch hunts, for example, yes. that happened throughout Europe and in America. And there is a, there's a quote from um, Francis Hill, and he was saying, during the witch hunts, in some Swiss villages, there were hardly any women left alive once the fever burned out. Yes. Like it got to such a fever. So basically, everybody had this free-floating anxiety, a lack of social bond, a lack of purpose, all of the conditions, presuming, led up to this. And then all of a sudden, someone came with a narrative that, oh, you know what the problem is? It's the witches. It's the mm -hmm. witches. It's the women who are the witches, yep. and that's the problem. So they became the scapegoat. They became the reason. Everybody became myopically focused, narrowed their field of attention on that external threat. And in that fever, they just burned women alive until, in some places, there were no women left. No, no, unbelievable. Yeah, yeah. Oh. Yes. So something very uh, important, I think, is that uh, for one reason or another, uh, uh, which can be explained, I'm writing a book in which I, I go into detail about about this, but I don't think we can do it now because it because it would lead, would lead us too far. But for one reason or another, the process of mass formation become uh, uh, stronger throughout the 19th century. Uh, and for instance, uh, Gustave Le Bon, who is one of the major uh, scholars uh, on uh, on the phenomenon of mass formation, warned us that. In 1895 already, that if it if if the process would uh, 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 would continue to become stronger, the process of mass formation, we would soon end up in a in a in a in a in a state in which uh, the the masses or the crowd would take over control in society, and that we would, according to Gustave Le Bon, uh, experience the emergence of a new kind of state, a new kind of uh, political apparatus, and that was exactly what happened. Uh, in the beginning of the 20th century, in the Soviet Union and in Nazi Germany. We saw this immense, these last large-scale process of mass formation there, and there the objects of anxiety were the aristocracy uh, in the Soviet Union and uh, the Jews in, uh, in Nazi Germany. And we saw that we saw how the masses emerged and how the masses were grasped in, uh, in, uh, in, this, uh, uh, in, in, in this specific narrative. Uh, and then um, uh, how suddenly a totalitarian regi regime took advantage of this of this mass formation and uh, started uh, one of the most cruel episodes uh, in uh, in modern history uh, with something with with certain characteristics like a, a totalitarian state is radically different from a classical dictatorship and that's very important and the difference is uh, this psychological process. Uh, classical dictatorship is not based on mass formation, not at all. Uh, a classical dictatorship is based on a very primitive process of fear that a human being has for someone who is stronger, who is in power. But uh, but in a, in a, in a dictatorship... Like any warlord, you know, like a warlord yes. in, a, in a tribal situation, I have the most guns, I have the people on my side, no. and if you don't comply i'll shoot you and that's what we see in a lot of movies actually you know like oh. a lot of the villains in the fantasy novels or whatever they're just they have the biggest army and and that's how they keep everybody oh, in control but it. we don't see the process and i think a lot of times we project that on someone like stalin like oh yeah he just did this and or oh. you know it was it was all him you know but no, no he just took advantage of a, of a deep psychological process yes. that was supported people were cheering cheering him on all the way up to the oh, point where he killed millions and millions of people. And then they were like, oh shit, what did we do? But that yeah. was like a little bit late. 
Of course, of course, and that's 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 exact. Uh, that's that's a difference between a classical dictatorship and a totalitarian state. And state, and it shows that it 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 it, it makes that actually the structure and the process uh, uh, totalitarian states go through is really different from the process of, of classical dictatorships. For instance, if in a classical dictatorship, the opposition uh, stops to speak out, like the, if the opposition, the, dis the dissonant voices, the, the, the dissident voices uh, uh, are silenced, uh, then usually the dictator uh, will become milder. He will he will become less aggressive because he realizes that uh, that he has to 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 try to 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 uh, to, to 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 be how do to 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 arise to to make the population symp sympathetic against him to 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 make them mm -hmm. to make them feel that he will be a good leader and stuff. So he has it's important for him that that at that moment he becomes milder and less aggressive because he is in power. He doesn't need to be aggressive anymore, but. And in the in uh, when when a in totalitarianism in a totalitarian state exactly the opposite happens. When the opposition is silent, when the opposition stops to speak out, at that moment exactly, uh, the uh, totalitarian state commits uh, its its most cruel atrocities. Starts to commit his most cruel atrocities, and that was what happened in 1930 in uh, in the Soviet Union when Stalin started his uh, large scale purifications, which uh, which led to about 80 million, 80 million people dying in, 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 in less than 10 years, according to Solzhenitsyn. And then in um, um, uh, so in the in Nazi Germany, uh, the same happened in, in uh, around 1935. The opposition uh, was silenced, and then uh, the, the real problem started in the totalitarian state. So totalitarianism is something really different from classical dictatorships, and. It's the process of mass formation that is important there. The process yeah. of mass formation, which became increasingly strong throughout the 19th century and throughout the 20th century. Like the witch hunts you refer to, uh, very important. These witch hunts indeed were perfect examples of mass formation, but they didn't last too long. And they were very... Because people uh, ran limited. out of women. Yes. <laughs> yes. 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 But that's, that's something that often happens. Like... Uh, um, uh, the larger the population, the worse um, uh, the, process, the processes of mass formation are. And for the reason you mentioned, because mass formation needs always new victims. Mass formation arises around an object of anxiety, and that object always has to be destroyed. And so if the population is too small, the mass formation will uh, take less long than in a large population. And that was exactly the reason, according to Hannah Arendt, a Jewish, uh, Jewish a German uh, philosopher, uh, why uh, totalitarian states, uh, the totalitarianism uh, was only successful or emerged only in countries with a, with a very large population, uh, such as uh, the, the the Soviet Union. Um, so what? Let me let me get this. Let me. I don't understand Soviet history that well, but I think initially. The scapegoat was the the wealthy, right? It was like the wealth, wealthy bourgeoisie, of, and that, they were the ones that were destroying the, the yes. country. Yeah. But ultimately, somehow Stalin then switched, because he ran out of those. There's not that many wealthy people, right? Yes. So he ran out of killing them and, and using them as a scapegoat. And then he switched it. He switched it to something else that, yes. that gave him the reasoning to kill all of the 80 million people that he killed. Yes, indeed. He he switched it to the kulaks, the small, the, the farmers actually, and then to the goldsmiths, then to the Jews, then to 
the one group the, the one uh, group after the other until finally he also killed 50% of his communist party members who usually didn't do anything wrong who were not disloyal to him not at all but he he uh, he uh, he uh, he killed them and the, the strangest thing about this was that these party members actually in a very strange way, which was also very nicely described by uh, George Orwell in Animal Farm, for instance, but also by Solzhenitsyn in the Gulag Archipelago, and Hannah Arendt also describes it. These party members who were uh, who were uh, um, uh, killed, who were uh, condemned, they all admitted that uh, they had been disloyal, that they had been traitors, and so on, which was very strange. Like people, observers from abroad, international observers, were baffled and they said like, like, what is happening there? We can't believe our eyes. These people uh, didn't do anything wrong or they did not go against uh, the rules of Stalin. And, 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 and now they, they admit that they have done uh, things wrong and that they deserve to die, which was extremely strange. And that, that's exactly uh, what happens in a process of mass formation. Someone is grasped so much in the narrative that he, he accepts uh, 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 the most absurd consequences of the narrative uh, even uh, if it costs him, uh, him or her, uh, 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 his own life. So that that's that's one of the the, the most strangest Would things. Would you call that? I've I've heard the word menticide. Would you call that? You know, what happens? The menticide is the killing of the mind. You know, yes, yes, at yes. a certain point, the totalitarian process it it kills the mind. It degrades. It degrades logical thinking. It degrades all of the faculties of sense making and meaning making to the point where the mind is dead. And at that point, you're so gullible to mm -hmm. suggestion you yeah. know that and it's something that you can see in a small scale you know where if you have a really belligerent uh interrogator in somebody they can someone with a with a weaker mind after enough time they'll admit to a crime that they didn't do and there's many examples of this in the justice system of you know a very aggressive and psychologically keen interrogator that's convinced somebody that they actually committed a murder yes. that they didn't do and then yeah, they'll yeah, find yeah. with dna results they didn't do it and they're like why did yeah. you admit to it and they're like yeah. i don't know indeed that's exactly what happens in a, in a in a process of mass formation the individual disappears and the collective uh becomes uh, absolutely predominant uh, and erases uh, all individual characteristics uh, and then that it makes it doesn't make a difference whether the people involved, the individual involved, are very intelligent or not, or not intelligent. It doesn't make any difference. Always the same happens. Everybody becomes equally stupid in a, in a, in a mass, and, 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 and it doesn't matter how smart or how intelligent they were before. They lose all capacity for critical thinking. They lose all individual characteristics uh, uh, because they are really absorbed in... Uh, this process of uh, of uh, of mass formation. So there is a there is a you know. So I've heard you talk about there is a spectrum of people who go along with the narrative and are very susceptible to this mass formation phenomenon. There's a people in the middle that are kind of like ah, I'm not really yeah. sure, and then there's a people who are in opposition of this, and that's the initial condition for mass formation. Then it seems like once we get to totalitarianism, the degradation of people's mind starts to actually make those numbers even increase but let's talk about the first part which is you know how this spectrum kind of plays out and and whether you you think that you know what's happening now is kind of what you're seeing in this spectrum and and of course we have to establish that it 
what we're seeing now has some of the characteristics of of mass formation. But let's let's talk about the spectrum first, and then let's talk about our current situation. Yes, 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 indeed. So, indeed, uh, um, uh, in a process, only usually when a process of mass formation emerges in a society or in a population, only thirty percent of the people is really hypnotized. So that's something very important because it seems there are much more, but it's not the case. There is only 30% of the people who are really hypnotized. Uh, and, and, and then uh, uh, there is an additional 40% of the people who goes along with this first group because they never go against the current and they feel that they don't want to go against the current, that it is too difficult and too dangerous to go against uh, uh, the crowd. So and then there is an additional 20 or 30% or something who is not hypnotized uh, uh, and who, uh, who wants to speak out, who wants to do something. Uh, uh, and, and, and so, but it can be surprising, like even in totalitarian states, states such as Germany or, or the Soviet Union, uh, usually uh, not more than about 30% of the people is really totalitarian. And that's something that is uh, observed time and time again. I don't know if you're familiar with, uh, uh, with uh, experiments of Solomon Ash. Solomon Ash was a psychologist who, who mm-hmm. did some experiments shortly after the, first, the Second World War, in which he he showed to small groups of about eight people um, on the uh, one uh, uh, line who was about thirty centimeters long, and then three other lines, and 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 the first of these three lines was about ten centimeters long, the second was uh, 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 120 centimeters long. And then the third one was about uh, 60 centimeters long. So it was clear in one glance of an eye, it was clear that the third line was the, was the line that was equally, uh, that had the same length as the first one. And that was what Solomon asked, uh, Ash asked to these small groups of participants, eight participants. He asked, what do you think? Which, line, which lines have the same length? And the first seven, the, the, the first seven of the participants actually were collaborators of Solomon Ash, and they were all instructed to give the wrong answer. They were all instructed to, to say that uh, line one and, and that, 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 that two lines were equally wrong, who were absolutely not uh, equally, equally long. So, and upon hearing that, upon hearing that the first seven participants uh, all gave uh, the wrong answer, of which a blind man could see that this was wrong. The eight participant in 75% of the cases gave the same wrong answer. So it was really amazing to see. And mm-hmm. uh, uh, there was, when I, when I studied that, uh, when I studied that, and it's a really powerful video as well, and maybe we'll be able to edit that into this just so people can see it. The psychologist in Solomon gave two hypotheses. One was that in some cases, people actually convinced themselves that they were yes. that they were wrong, that their mm-hmm. eyes were deceiving them, and they were just wrong, and so they actually believed yes, that they I mean. were that they believed what everybody else was saying was true. And then another group was just so shy yeah. about saying something different from everybody else because they were so worried that the other people would, you know, make yeah. them an outcast. So they were just going along with it, even though they knew they were wrong. They were giving the wrong answer. So there was two reasons why the participants were giving the wrong answer. Yes, indeed. So, and there were these three groups as well. The three groups, the first group who, who, who really believe uh, uh, or who are really hypnotized by, by the group and who are really 
convinced that that, that, that that the wrong answer was the right answer and then the second the second group who knew that it was the wrong answer but who didn't mm. uh, dare to, to to speak out and then the third group who who, who saw that uh, who, who gave the, the, the right answer and who dared to speak out. So indeed, you see these three groups time and time again, and you see them in each process of mass formation. A group that is really hypnotized and then a totalitarian state who becomes really totalitarian, then a second group who just only goes along uh, uh, with the first group and then a third group who, uh, who does not want to, to, to buy into the story and who, who wants to speak out. Um, so meaning, meaning that in this situation, if the people... Who uh, who uh, who want to speak out the dissident, the dissident voices? If in one way or another they could unify and form one group, then it's very probably the second group of about forty percent of the people might switch direction and join them, and that would mean that the mass formation is over. Yes, so this, but so that that that's one of the of the, of the solutions to the problem. If the the if all but but if all the people who who uh, who want to speak out and who who, who want to go again who who are not hypnotized and who, who who want to do something against the crowd or against the, the 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 mainstream narrative, if they would unify and become one group, they would be powerful enough uh, to uh, to change the direction of the middle group, which would mean that the majority of the people uh, uh, would go in a different direction uh, than the people who are really hypnotized. One of the challenges now let's let's bring this to the modern context, and you know we've explained you know the the theory and the philosophy behind mass formation. What do you see in in the current in the current system that we're we're seeing? You know who is becoming the scapegoats? Um, where is where is this pointed to, and and what makes you you know what do you feel like is dangerous about the current situation that we're in? And uh, as it pertains to the pandemic, well, yes, the the the, the risk, of course, is that the people who don't uh, who don't want to to uh, to buy into the narrative that they uh, that they become the scapegoat. Indeed, the anti-vaxxers, for instance, the people who don't want to take the vaccine, uh, uh, might become public enemy number one, and they might become the object of this fourth condition that we mentioned in the beginning of all this free-floating frustration and aggression, because that's also something typical for mass formation. All the free-floating frustration and aggression that existed before the mass formation is projected and channeled onto uh, 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 the people who, who, who are not uh, into the process of mass formation. So that's one major risk. And then um, uh, also, of course, uh, if uh, the masses would succeed in silencing these people, then uh, the, 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 the masses will, uh, will start to commit atrocities also towards uh, the members of the masses themselves. So that's strange. Hannah Arendt says uh, the masses or totalitarianism and mass formation always is a monster that divorces its own children. Uh, something very strange. It's mm -hmm. always in the end, it starts to kill among its own members. So... The most important thing, actually, the most important thing we can do in this situation is to continue to speak out. I repeat this time and time again. Mass formation is a um, one kind of, of hypnosis. It's an example of hypnosis, and hypnosis works through the voice. If people have to, it's it's the the the, the it's it's in one way or another. People are grasped in the resonance of a voice. That's what totalitarian leaders know. They start each day with 
30 minutes of propaganda, for instance, just to keep people into the narrative and to make sure that they continue to resonate with uh, the voice of the reader or with, uh, with, uh, with, uh, with, uh, with uh, the narrative that led up to the mass formation. So, and the opposite is also true. Like if there are dissident voices, if there are dissonant voices that continue to speak out, then the hypnosis will become less deep. Gustave Le Bon in the 19th century said, usually dissonant voices will not have the power to wake up the masses, but they will make the hypnosis less deep and they will prevent that the masses start to commit atrocities. So mm-hmm. that's what we all have to realize. We all have to realize, in my opinion, that it is not an, op- an option to stop speaking. We should continue to speak out. <laughs> yeah. That's the, one, the most important thing we can do. So we see, we see some conditions, you know, when you talk about atrocities, people might think, all right, this will never happen. You know, this will never, never exist. But all of this begins with some form of dehumanization and some form of really making some other the enemy, right? And we've already heard in the mainstream narrative, people who don't want to take the vaccine, it's become the pandemic of the vaccine. Yes. And then they've, they're, they're killers, they're domestic terrorists. That's mm-hmm. actually a word that mainstream mm-hmm. media has been using. And it seems like the advantage of the the advantage of the state in this in this case is that they control the mainstream narrative. There's a there's a clip that I saw recently of every you know dozens and dozens of newscasters from different all you know Fox News and ABC and CBS yes. and CNN. They were all reading the exact same script, yes, right? So. Do, yeah. There's a centralization of the narrative. And the production then, of the narrative is centralized, yes. Yeah, and then with that, then there's also the the silencing of the contrary narrative, which is coming through social media. And people yeah, say, yeah, oh, true. well, you know, Instagram can censor whoever they want. It's a private company. and But nonetheless, the pressure that's being applied, you know, seems to be, or or they are just in the mass formation themselves and they're just deciding to do it. Who knows? I'm not trying to propose a conspiracy i don't know what's happening i think it's very likely that people are just caught in their own mass formation but what we're seeing is we're seeing censorship of dissonant voices and we're seeing the collaboration of this on the single narrative that's being pushed out through the mainstream and that's that's the challenge that i think in all of these cases and all of these societies you face is that the more centralized communication is and the more the more they're able to silence dissident narratives, burn books. It used to be, mm. you know, but now it's now censoring and deplatforming and banning different. It starts to allow them to be able to be in easier control of the masses, and I think that's what of we course. have to look at. Is you know when when doctors are being censored from giving their opinion, mm. like why? When when uh, when in history has that ever happened? That's not science. That's not the scientific method. You come up with a theory. And you have a bunch of people challenge it. I mean, you're an academic. You propose a theory. You expect all of your colleagues to be like, Matthias, I don't agree with you. <laughs> this is why. And you mm-hmm. say, thank you. I appreciate mm-hmm. your critique. Now let, me explain why, now let me explain why I'm right. But it's not really what we're seeing no. right now. So this is also leading to you know, an opinion that, all right, this is, this is dangerous. These conditions are appearing like they're following a pattern. And it's a pattern that we've seen. And it's a pattern that leads to a disastrous, dystopian, catastrophic result mm. in many other cases. I'm not saying that's where we're going necessarily, but there's indications that cause worry. 
Yeah, yeah, sure, sure, sure. Yes, I, you know the the large scale mass formation that we that we have seen in from the 20th century on, it can never exist without mass media. So that's clear. You need mass media who distribute the same narrative time and time again uh, uh, to 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 make this large scale and long term mass formation happen. Uh, and usually, I think it's a mixture, and and it, it's for ninety percent an unconscious process, but there is also for ten percent uh, about or maybe I I I, I say ten percent now could be more, could be less, but uh, uh, intentional manipulation of the masses that also happens, and usually the people who do it are convinced that they will bring paradise to society. Like Stalin was, he was convinced that his historical materialistic ideal society would be realized, uh, and and that and that. In order to do that, it was justified uh, to to manipulate uh, the population, to 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 move them in, a, in the direction he wanted. And exactly the same was uh, the case for Hitler, who who felt that his 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 uh, race theory would uh, uh, turn uh, society into a kind of a paradise. Um, and that exactly for that reason, uh, it was justified uh, to provoke some collateral damage. And I think it's the same now. Of course, there are some powerful institutions who have this ideal image of society and who want to use the crisis uh, to move the society in, 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 in the direction they think uh, uh, is optimal. Uh, and they use all their uh, power that is at their means, I think, to, to, yeah, to, uh, to make people go in a direction they want. That's true. But I think for, for, for 95%, what is happening is not a process of uh, um, large-scale uh, manipulation, but for 95%, we are in a process of large-scale unconscious mass formation in which mm. almost everybody is grasped. I think we shouldn't be naive. There has always been uh, intentional manipulations. There are al always institutions who want to benefit from all kinds of circumstances. Uh, all institutions have their own idea about how the future society should look like, and they always will use their power and 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 to uh, to uh, yeah to move in that direction. So that's definitely happening, but that doesn't take away. I think that for ninety five percent, it's a phenomenon of mass formation that happens. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. And so you know, for certain people, their their fatal flaw is not that they hate the world or hate society. It's not the Batman villain Bane, you know, that just wants no. to watch the world burn. They actually are more like the Bond villains that are like, ah, oh, well, you know, or Thanos, for example. Yes, like, yes, oh, exactly. For, for, for an ordered universe, we need to kill half, we need to blink half of the people yes. out of existence yeah. and then the universe will be fine and then I'll yeah. retire. The motivation was pure. Yes. In a way, it's just the delusion, the delusion yes. and the hubris to say, I yes. can be God and I and have exactly. all the knowledge and I can decide. So it's very interesting because the actions themselves are evil, but yes. the intentions are often not evil. So when we project oh. these like demonic reptilian things upon them, it's not that. They're just no, no, a no, little, no. they're just overconfident, yes. you know, and they yes. just think they're doing something good, but they're actually not. Yes, we are dealing with megalomaniac plans here. That's the right word, I think. Not so much with psychopaths. That's not true. People often say that we are dealing with psychopaths. I think we are dealing with megalomaniac plans. People who believe that, uh, that they will solve all the problems in the world by imposing a new uh, uh, social system, uh, which is, I think, the basic ideology of the system is transhumanist in nature. People who believe that problems can only be solved through technological control. I truly believe that this is what 
uh, drive these people. This is their view on man and the world, and this is their idea on how uh, uh, the problems of humanity can be solved, uh, which is delusionary, I think. It's not true at all. That, that, that exactly this mechanistic ideal, this mechanistic thinking, this transhumanist thinking uh, is the cause of the problems. Because if we wonder why we ended up before the corona crisis in this terrible mental state in which people felt socially disconnected, in which they, they experienced this lack of meaning making, in which they, there was all this free-floating attention, all this frustration, then we can clearly see that uh, all this free-floating anxiety and this frustration, that it started to increase once the world became industrialized and mechanized. And so this is very typical. While the mechanistic view on men and the world started to become predominant, at the same pace, the free-floating uh, the free-floating anxiety and also the social disconnectedness started to increase. And that's mm -hmm. why, Hannah Arendt says, that's why the phenomenon of mass formation became increasingly strong throughout the last centuries. Because more and more people ended up in an isolated state more and more people uh, dealt with this free-floating anxiety. So I believe that the people who, the large institutions who are in charge now and who actually uh, try to shape the future according to their own ideal image, well, I think that these people propose as a solution exactly this kind of discourse, exactly this kind of uh, things that caused the problem. And, and, and that's yeah. some, Einstein said something very nice about that. You can never solve a problem by the same a kind of thinking that caused it <laughs> and yeah. that's exactly that's exactly what people try to do now i think um, yeah it's like the in, in the in the myth of control charles eisenstein talks about this in the myth of yes, control yes. it's always an increasing amount of control that's the solution and it never ends oh if the control didn't work more control will work off oh, technology didn't work more technology will work more technology but, yes. It's, it's just this endless process. They don't want to reevaluate their thinking, probably because their identity is attached to this solution that they believe is going to work and by whatever mechanism. I want to switch gears here real quick and talk about, you know, one of the things that I see happening is this is not just a singular narrative that's creating mass formation because there's small pockets of mass formation that are existing as well. Because on the other side, in opposition to the mainstream pandemic narrative, there's a counter mass formation of people who are in this deep conspiracy thinking yes. that all liberals are evil. And so they're scapegoating liberals or they're scapegoating certain politicians or Bill Gates or whoever, whoever becomes the object of no. the external, the external threat that their free floating anxiety, their anxiety is then attached to. So it's a very interesting time where, all right, we have one side where it's the dominant narrative that's causing a mass formation. And then on the other side, we have a counter mass formation, which is much smaller. Yes. But that's also not the right way, right? Like that's, no, no, that's no, no, no. also a scary thing as well, because if, if that side wins, it's just going to be the same problem yes. with a different scapegoat and a different, a different victim of the, of the atrocity. So that doesn't no. work. So what needs to emerge is a third way of just, loving compassionate rational yeah. thinking and and that's really what i've been trying to dedicate my efforts toward is like it's not about picking sides here it's about sense making no, no. in general Indeed. and universal Indeed. compassion yeah i agree i agree on the other side there is a, there is a very similar process in which people are confronted with a lot of anxiety uh because they they feel 
uh, threatened by the process of the mass formation. They also deal with a lot of free-floating anxiety and they connect it to a different object, to the elite, <laughs> to, the, to the Illuminati or right. a, sm a, small, a small elite that would threaten them. They dehumanize this small group of people. So they have a different enemy while the masses have uh, as an enemy the people who refuse to conform with the masses. These, this, the other side also creates a, 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 an enemy, an object of anxiety. And in a similar way, they want to destroy this enemy. They believe that if we destroy the elite, the problem will be solved, which, which of course is not true. <laughs> no, I know. <laughs> no. Yeah, so it's dehumanization elite, on both sides. One side, there's domestic yeah. terrorists. On the other side, there's reptilian elites yes. yeah. and sheep. Yeah. I mean, can uh, talk about dehumanization. Like yeah. they're they're literally making them not human, yeah. Yeah. you know. And so we're dealing with this on on both sides, and mm -hmm. and so fundamentally, like neither way is going to work. No. And it's a very it's a very interesting predicament because I was looking out at the world. I was like, I well, I can't join that team, mm -hmm. you know, because that team is following mm -hmm. the same principles. They're on the same mechanism as the other mm -hmm. team, and I certainly can't join that team. Mm -hmm. So what's the third team? And that's, you know, I, I came up with this sentiment, call, I call it united polarity, which is like mm -hmm. taking both sides with, with absolute reverence and reminding people that underneath all of the opinions and ideologies, there's a human and it's a human that's yeah. scared. It's a human that's lonely. It's a human that wants the best for themselves yes, and yes, other yes, people yes, yes, at yes. the fundamental level. Let's remind ourselves of that. Let's actually, instead of dehumanizing Let's superhumanize them. Uh -huh. Let's see ourselves in them. Let's see ourselves in every single other person and unite the polarities, not by trying to change them, mm -hmm. but saying like, look, what is the common ground mm -hmm. by which we all stand? And that's really, through this whole process, that's the only thing that's really made sense to me. And, and when I speak about it, it seems like people, maybe it's that group, that 40% in the middle, but that group in the middle is like, no. ah, I like that. I like. I can stand behind that, mm. and so I'm hoping that that you know, in in some small way, in whatever way I'm able to contribute, that can help become part of this, you know, part mm. of this force that mitigates some of the damage of the mass formation mm. leading to total totalitarianism. Yes, I, I I hope I am part of the same force. <laughs> I really hope. I believe so. you are. Yes. Uh, because I, I agree, there is a strong uh, tendency to dehumanize on both sides, and that's exactly what we should avoid. We should try to to identify with uh, being someone who uh, who tries to speak as sincere as possible and who gives everybody the right to speak out his own opinion. That's being human. What makes us human is that we have the right to speak in our own way and in, in the way we prefer. And, and that's, uh, uh, if, if, if people could unify, if people could uh, form a group because they all identify with this position, that would be the solution to the problem we are facing. Yes. Yeah. The, yeah. Um, one of the other things that, you know, is, is concerning. So when you look at some of the, the mechanism of totalitarianism, there's some, some thinkers who talk about uh, and have analyzed that there's waves of terror. And this is how... This is how it kind of works in the waves of terror. So something becomes really scary. There's a retraction where it's not so scary. And then something else really scary happens. And it's just kind of like battering down. Like you imagine a big, big log trying to batter down a batter down a door. And so this is this is something that I think we should be mindful of that if this process is happening 
you know, we should be aware that if there's a second wave, this is part of the, this is, you know, part of the, the, the playbook for actually weakening people's defenses and having them desire to reach for some powerful, despotic, tyrannical, totalitarian leader who can save the day, you mm -hmm. know, because they just get more and more scared. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yes, it's something, um, something quite strange, I think, that uh, the masses always long for a severe and cruel leader, Gustave Le Bon said. Which is very, which is something very strange, something in the in the process of mass formation. Like if you look, we 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 come from a very individualistic age in which people try to find meaning in their own lives and in, in, in their own way. But actually, in a strange way, now we see how the opposite emerges. It is as if people want to lose themselves in the masses, in the crowd, and as if they are looking for a leader who tells them what to do. And that that's one of the most specific aspects of mass formation, I think, that it makes people long for a, 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 for a hard, harsh leader. Gustave Le Bon describes this already. And if the leaders of the masses understand this, they understand that they can be as absurd as they want, that they can be as harsh as they want, that they can impose the most absurd limitations to uh, individuals' lives, it will only make uh, mass formation stronger and it will only make the leaders more popular. Because um, it's like a, it's, it's imposing sacrifice, yes. which, is, which yes. is a deep part of ritual. And I've heard you That's talk about ritual. this, exactly. how, like, how like the sacrifice itself, it's exactly. like any initiation process. It's difficult. Uh, it's hard. Yes. We've had to do this together. We gave up Thanksgiving yes. and we gave up Christmas and we gave up, we never left our house and no. we put masks on our three-year-old children and we sacrificed, we sacrificed. And that yes. ritual then actually increases this sense of social bond. Of course, exactly. You nail it down now, I think. That's exactly what happens. Like the corona measures, the lockdowns, the social distancing, the mask wearing, and so on, actually have the function unconsciously of a ritual. A ritual meaning a kind of behavior that as the only function has to create a social bond. And the less practical practically meaningful such a behavior is, the better it serves the, its function as a ritual. The more absurd it is, the better it serves a function as a, as a ritual, and the more sacrifices it demands, the better it functions as a ritual. Because in this yeah. way, the individual that sacrifices something shows that uh, the collective, that the group, the cohesion among the group mem members it's, is more important than its individual than what is important to the individual. So that's exactly how rituals function. Rituals have to be uh, uh, practic pragmatically meaningless, uh, useless, and they have to demand sacrifices of the individual. And that's exactly what the corona measures do. They are absurd without practical relevance, most of them. And then, uh, and, and also they, uh, they, they, they imply huge losses for the individuals, which makes them uh, very useful, very suitable. As, a, as rituals uh, for, for the new, uh, yeah, new cohesion, the new, the new collective, the new solidarity. And, you know, people who hear that, you know, will vehemently deny that the rituals are meaningless. And, and it's, and, you know, of course, I have enough epistemic humility to say like, all right, maybe that maybe there, there is some purpose to these rituals. But you also have to acknowledge the nature, the psychological nature. Like you have to look at both. Like even if there is meaning, 
to these rituals of mask wearing. And even if there is meaning to the social isolation, you have to look at what it actually is happening psychologically as well. Just like we were mentioning before, you have to look at the damage of the virus and you have to look at the social damage. You have to look at, all right, what is the, what is the actual possibility of prevention, you know, based on mm-hmm. all of these different procedures? And when, what is the psychological cost? And there should be a, a, just a whole group of top psychologists and sociologists who are saying, all right, this is the damage that's being done to children having to wear masks when they're in school. And this is the risk of children actually contracting COVID, right? Like this is the, let's take a look at this from a really mm-hmm. holistic perspective. Of course. But yeah. that's certainly, certainly not happening. So whether yeah. you think these rituals are meaningless or whether you think these rituals are essential, that's fine. Just, but also, please mm-hmm. look yes, at yes, the, yes, look yes. at the total picture. Yeah. You know, regardless of what's happening on a psychological level. And I hope, no matter what everybody thinks, as you know, they're listening to this podcast, like to become aware of the psychological processes to make the unconscious mm-hmm. conscious is is extremely important. Indeed, indeed. Yes, and maybe, and it's maybe, maybe some of the measures had a certain practical effect that's possible but uh and the, the psychological function it, it, what i tell only shows i think that we should not expect that because the measures are absurd in certain respect people will stop to follow them not at all the yep. more absurd they are the more the 30 percent of people who are under hypnosis will be willing to cling to them and to follow them that yeah, just deepens it deepens their vigor for these. So when we're talking about all right, the ways to stand in resistance, you know, I think identifying as I said, you know, the united polarity movement that, you know, that I've really start to put out there into the world, the idea of recognizing the shared humanity amongst all people and drawing people together for that cause. I think that's, you know, that's something that I of course want to mention, but there's uh Vaclav Havel who was uh the president of Czechoslovakia went through um periods of Russian communism. He talks about the importance of parallel structures, and these are like enclaves, uh, havens of where different ideologies and philosophies operate, and how important they are, even in totalitarian, even if it goes all the way to totalitarian, these, these you know, what uh, Charles Eisenstein would call islands of sanity, you know, mm-hmm. these parallel structures, these places where, you know, people can recognize each other's sovereignty and humanity and and this is really important and it's important for people to understand that even if you're not out publicly speaking which as you said it's important a lot of the hypnosis comes verbally so mm-hmm. definitely speak but another big part of the resistance is just become part of the parallel structure become part of something that is a living breathing example definitely. of something different yes yes i, I, I entirely agree yes yes and the, those parallel structures are extremely important and it doesn't matter so much where you speak out, I think. If, if it is in a small group, if, if it is in front of a camera on television or in a podcast, or if it is around the kitchen table or in a small shop or on the streets, I think that if you look at, I think that something like this, this process of mass formation can really be compared to a complex dynamical system. And in complex and dynamical systems, even the smallest action in the smallest spot of the system uh, can can make the ch- the system change. That's something very very um, uh, a very specific characteristic of of complex dynamical systems. So it doesn't matter where you are. It doesn't matter how large your audience is. But continue to speak out. Continue mm. to speak out. Yes. 
in this specific in this specific case, there's two factors that I think are are interesting that are perhaps different than other other periods of mass formation. One is that social isolation has been part of the policy, which is mm. removing people from other people. The other one is if you're around people, you're wearing a mask, which is limiting the amount of nonverbal mm. communication mm. that you can have and the actual connection you have with people. This is either you know a happy accident to and, and an actual a, a logical um, a logical way to stop the spread of disease, which certainly yeah, you know being around people less. I, I think COVID is a real virus, and not being around someone who has a virus is certainly helpful. The mask debate is certainly has evidence on both sides, but in either case, these two conditions seem like they're actually exacerbating and and actually creating more conditions where this mass formation is possible because mm -hmm. people are isolated and because if they are around each other, they're ma they're literally masked. Do mm -hmm. you see that as like something that's actually, you know, accelerating the process of mass formation, this, these two yes. different things? You know, mass, you can consider mass formation as a kind of a psychological symptom, symptom of a society. And as all symptoms do, they always uh, create more of the conditions that make them emerge. So that's always, so at, at, at the individual level, you see the same. Like if someone drinks too much alcohol, uh, something in his system will change which makes him even long more after, al after, after alcohol. And mm. that's exactly the same with all symptoms. Symptoms always recreate and reinforce uh, the, 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 the things they need to exist. And I think with mass formation, it's the same. Mass formation in one way or another uh, will make that uh, after a while, uh, people feel even more socially isolated. That was exactly what happened in Nazi Germany and then uh, the Soviet Union as well. After a while, uh, people didn't dare to come together anymore with more than two or three people because they were always scared of being, uh, uh, of being accused uh, that they were conspiring against the state. So, and in that way, they become even more socially isolated than they were in the beginning. And that in itself made them more susceptible, more vulnerable to mass formation. So uh, the phenomenon of mass formation indeed in one way or another makes that, that society ends up in a vicious spiral. It always goes down and it, goes, and it always goes down faster. And in the end, it always leads up to its own destruction. That's something very important. Totalitarianism, uh, classical dictatorships can exist for thousands of years such as in Egypt uh, with the pharaohs, for instance, but totalitarian systems usually destroy themselves and quite quickly, usually. And I think that uh, uh, this kind of totalitarianism we are in now, like uh, Hannah Arendt warned us already in 1953, she said, we've seen the decline and fall of Nazism and we see the decline of, of, uh, of the Soviet Union, of Stalinism now. But she, she warned us that that does not mean that the trend towards totalitarianism will stop. Very soon, she said, a new totalitarian state will emerge and it will be a worldwide system, she said, and it will be a system that is no longer led by mob leaders such as Stalin and Hitler, but by dull technocrats and bureaucrats. Uh, and I think that's what, yes, I think that's what we are about to, 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 to see now. And such as, uh, just like the totalitarian systems of the first half of the 20th century, this system will destroy itself and it probably will destroy itself much quicker than the systems of the, total, than the, systems of the, of the 20th century.
it will be more intrinsically self-destructive because you know, totalitarianism and mass formation are always, always self-destructive. You can explain this very, uh, uh, very well in a, in a, in a, from a psychological point of view, uh, but it's quite complicated. But but uh, uh, they are always self-destructive, and once you realize that, you know that the only thing you have to do is, in one way or another, you have to try to survive outside of the system in a parallel structure and just wait until the system mm. destroys itself. Well, that seems like a, a pretty clear, pretty clear prerogative and, and to help mitigate. So it seems like mitigate the amount of damage and, and help mm. hopefully prevent the level of atrocities where people are going around. And because we yes. saw that actually happen after, you know, after 9-11, where people were attacking mosques and, you know, we've yeah. seen this where, you know, we feel threatened and then people lash out and there's this vigilante thing. So do our best to mitigate, you know, the level of atrocity that, mm -hmm. of course, I don't think it'll ever reach the level. It's a different type. It's more of a psychological totalitarianism, unlike, you know, the, the, the way that it was in Germany or Russia, but who knows, you know, but it feels like it's going to be a, a more of a psychological war that's being waged mm -hmm. but still nonetheless on the periphery there can be atrocities that occur uh -huh. so so mitigating those as much as possible by standing for you know standing for the recognition of humanity and then also accelerating the awakening of people to all of the deep unconscious psychological processes that exist the seduction of the solution of mass formation how you can externalize a problem that's internal how seductive that is and then also the seduction of the ego to say i'm helping the world more than you so i'm better mm -hmm. than you and how good that feels to be the one that really is sacrificing the most and helping mm -hmm. people more because that makes you better than someone else hey i'm a better person than joe rogan and joe rogan's super powerful and super wealthy but i'm better than him because i care more and mm -hmm. then how seductive that is psychologically Mm. you know just to be aware of all of these processes like it's okay like we're all we're all fallible we're all vulnerable mm. we're mm. all subject to unconscious processes any of us could walk on stage with a top hypnotist like a world-class mm. hypnotist we could walk on stage and in 10 minutes we could be clucking like a chicken in front mm -hmm. of an audience you know mm -hmm. like it could happen to any of us and then would mm. our friends later like two years later be like you fucking chicken you're mm. such a chicken like no like you would have mm. been a chicken too mm -hmm. you know it's like it, our mind is our mind is vulnerable and so to have that compassion for everybody i think it's so important yeah you, but do you know that usually people who are under hypnosis stick to the same ethical rules and ethical level as they do when they are not hypnotized mm. that's interesting i think so being hypnotized is not an excuse to transgress uh, ethical boundaries. That's yeah. something important, but it doesn't matter. I, I agree with you, of course. Yeah, that, that's that's what, yeah, we we uh, we should. I think that is maybe the deeper meaning of this crisis that it confronts us, or that it might lead to an analysis of who we are as a human being uh, uh, for someone else. That it might confront us with 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 with, with who we are, and that it can make us think about uh, uh, how we can uh, 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 what what the right thing to do is in in, in this situation uh, it will yeah I don't know I, I feel that in one way or another this crisis pushes me um, and brings me closer to myself and then by continuing to speak out 
uh, I learned to to control my own anger, for instance, if people react aggressively yeah. towards me, and so on. I feel that in one way or another, this process uh, leads to a, a, an intense questioning of who I am, and uh, and in one and 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 makes that I yeah, go through an evolution as a human being. And and I hope that uh, the same is the case for many other people. Um, yeah. Yeah, no doubt. That brought something up because I have seen that where a hypnotist, a top hypnotist will hip, put someone under a deep hypnosis, give them a knife and say, stab me. Mm-hmm. And they'll do anything else. They'll do anything else, humiliating, mm-hmm. completely humiliating. They would mm-hmm. take their pants off or they would you mm-hmm. know, pretend to have sex or act like a chicken, whatever. They'll do all mm-hmm. that stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, but they won't hurt somebody else no. under, mm-hmm. under hypnosis. So mm-hmm. this isn't mass formation isn't exactly hypnosis it's something a little bit different because it can lead to atrocities that are so it's almost like there's it's almost more manchurian candidate this kind of different psychological process that's similar to hypnosis but also different because it seems like historically at least it's led to people committing you know committing atrocities that they normally wouldn't commit under normal conditions unless there's just a percentage of people that are naturally homicidal anyways. And yes, I think there are. I think there are, but um, um, yes, there are definitely, I think that mass formation is a kind of hypnosis, but there are differences with uh, classical hypnosis. And for instance, the uh, in the process of mass formation, the, the hypnotist is hypnotized himself. That's the most important difference. And like in a, in a classical hypnosis, the hypnotist is awake. He, he his 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 field yeah. of attention is not narrower than normal. So, but 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 the the, the people the, the person who is hypnotized uh, suffers from a from a narrow field of attention, but the hypnotist doesn't. And in a process of mass formation, usually the opposite is true. The uh, field of attention of the, the the person who hypnotizes is usually even narrower than the than 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 that mm-hmm. of the masses themselves. So that's why the the experts in this situation they uh, make mistakes that that ordinary people wouldn't make. And that's it's, it was very clear for, to me from the beginning. If you look at the statistics and the numbers that are presented through the mass media, they often are so blatantly wrong uh, that even a child can see it. And still, mm-hmm. it is as if many of the experts do not realize it. And that's because in one way or another, they very often are, are hypnotized or the field of, their field of attention is even narrower. So, you know, we could talk for days about the leaders of the masses. It's very complicated because in one way or another, they are hypnotized. In another way, they often manipulate and cheat and lie to the people. And that's mm-hmm. because, so they, they do really believe in their ideology and and their and the ideals they are, they are they are striving for that's something they are they they are usually hypnotized by but usually they do not believe in the narrative that they are presenting to the people they feel that it is uh that it is justified to lie to the people and to manipulate them. So you have to make a distinction there. They are hypnotized in this sense that they really believe in a, in a, in a megalomaniac way uh, that uh, that uh, their ideology will uh, create a kind of a paradise for uh, uh, for, for 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 humanity. Uh, but that doesn't mean that they believe everything uh, they are telling because usually they know that uh, that they are. Uh, uh, manipulating the population so it's double I think Um, um, have you 
have you um, have you been threatened to lose your job as a professor for speaking out in this way? Has has there any been has there been any consequences for you professionally? Because we no. certainly hear that in, uh, in the, different places. Not at this moment. Not at this moment. So I've been under huge pressure. Uh, uh, some people at my university, um, yeah told me that I should watch out at what I was saying. And I felt that they implied that, uh, well, if I continued in the same way that it could, I could uh, uh, get in trouble. Uh, but at the same time, well, I've never felt up until now, I've never felt really threatened because it, in Belgium, uh, uh, a professor is, is a very well protected profession. Uh, but I think in the nearby future, it might become problematic, actually. I, I, I think that well, things are getting worse, of course, like, um, well, um, yeah, if you're, for instance, if you refuse the vaccine, I don't know if it will, if you will still be, if it will still be possible to teach to students, for instance. Um, yeah. yeah, yeah, we're seeing yeah. that in, uh, with a lot of our healthcare workers. Um, it's, it's very, very interesting times. Well, I want to end with something, um, something, a positive message that actually came from Carl Jung. And, uh, he says, and obviously it wasn't pertaining to this time, but he, it's almost uh, very prescient for where we are now. He says, it is not for nothing that our age cries out for the Redeemer personality, for the one who can emancipate himself from the, glip, from the grip of the collective psychosis, mm. save at least his own soul, who lights a beacon of hope for others, proclaiming that here is at least one man who has succeeded in extricating himself from the fatal identity within the group psyche. Oh, yeah. Wonderful. And it's, a, it's just a beautiful message to say, look, even if you don't say anything, even if you don't go out there, like, emancipate yourself. You yes. know, like, this is, this is crucial. Like, be the living example of someone who is free and yeah. someone who can generate their own thoughts and have agency and, and, you know, be aware of your own biases, be aware of your own you know, desire for confirmation, be aware of your own desire to be better than other. It's all okay. We're all human, mm -hmm. but, you know, liberate yourself with that awareness. And, uh, and that's a, a great way to stand, um, stand in this world where people are really subject to, you know, phenomenon like mass formation. That's a very nice quote. Yes, I agree. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for, uh, for joining. Where can, uh, if people are interested in learning more from you or, or um, and I know you got a book coming out, if you want to talk about that. Yes, well, it, 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 it will first be, it will be published in, uh, in Dutch first, but then it will be translated very quickly. Um, uh, it's, it's, it's the, the title is The Psychology of Totalitarianism. I really go into uh, into uh, the phenomenon of totalitarianism and mass formation, it, its historical roots, uh, and try to explain uh, how uh, um, it emerged in our society. And then also, I will also try to show what the real solutions to the problem are. Um, um, yes, it will. You, I think it will be available in Dutch somewhere in February next year, and then I hope a few months later also in English and in American. Uh, yeah. Well, if the if the world hasn't dramatically changed by then, then uh, maybe we'll do another podcast after Wonderful. I can yeah, get, my, get my yes, hands man, on that, the that would be very nice. That. Yes, yeah. <laughs> absolutely. Okay. Well, thank you so much. I appreciate you coming on. Yeah, thank you for listening, Audrey. Thanks for tuning into this podcast with Matthias. Hopefully, it opened your mind to possibilities about the psychological processes that are happening in the world we're in right now. Just know that no matter what. 
the way forward is to recognize each other in love, in the shared humanity, and the reverence. And we're all going to make it through this. No matter what, we're going to make it through this. I really, really believe that. Thanks for tuning in, everybody. We'll see you next week.